Hello, and welcome to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. Our host is John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And no, he's not making that up. Each week, we'll talk to amazing leaders from around the country and just about every field you can think of and pick up truths from their hard-won wisdom. In the words of John's fifth-grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it'll be fast, fun, and we'll get it done. So please join us for an inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. Hello, and welcome back for another episode of Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And my guest today is an all-time favorite, Greg Meyer, uh, considered one of the top 10 all-time American-born marathoners. He won Chicago, Detroit, and yes, Boston in 1983, and a running pal of Bill Rogers, Mr. Marathon himself. So without further ado, Mr. Meyer, the champ, how you doing, sir? It's It's good to be with you, John. It's been a while. It has been a while, and we'll catch up, and we'll act like no one's listening. How does that sound? (laughs) I'm better that way. Yeah, we all are. Trust me. (laughs) So let's dive right into it, though. For folks who don't know uh, you necessarily, of course, I just named the three main reasons, Chicago, Detroit, and Boston. At the height of the American running craze is when Greg won the Boston Marathon. But to get there and then to get to your coaching career as well as to your business career, because the whole point of this podcast is – what we learn on the ice, on the track, and so on is av- absolutely transferable to the business world, and you're going to prove it here before we're done. But you're born and raised in Grand Rapids and went to Grand Rapids West Catholic. Is that correct? That is correct. And how did you catch the running bug? This is a good story. You know, I, I started running um, in grade school for other sports, you know, basketball, football, always loved football. Um, but... I seemed what I was best at was the fitness portion when they made you run laps and and do different things to get in condition for that sport. And when I was in eighth grade uh, playing football, I broke my thumb and I wasn't able to play the last couple of games. And I think I was annoying one of the assistant coaches on the sideline. So he said, why don't you go run two miles and I'll time you. And I think he did it just to get me out of his hair. Um, but I ended up running a, a little over 12 minutes for two miles on a cinder track in my, uh, back then, Joe Lapchek special high tops. Oh, man. And when I got done, he just looked at me and he said, you know, next year when you get to high school, they got a sport for guys like you. It's called cross country. <laughs> so that was sort of my first inkling towards distance running. I love that. You also told me a, a more personal story, of course, about you read a book, I believe, in eighth grade that got you turned on to the whole idea. At a time when you could use some confidence, and who couldn't in eighth grade, of course. I think it's probably the hardest year for everybody. Um, that also sparked your interest, I believe, in running, correct? There was a story in one of our English classes, and it had to do with a, a, a soldier in the war, and they needed to get a message much like the Philippides story. Mm-hmm. And they used him as the messenger because he had run the Boston Marathon at some point in his career. And um, I, I just found it intriguing that, you know, somebody would use running in a different sense, um, not having known the real story of Fidipides in the Boston Marathon at that point. Um, right there. And this is before it, it gets big, before Frank Shorter in 72, of course, wins the gold medal in the marathon at Munich, before the running craze starts in the late 60s, you're already starting to catch the bug a little bit. To educate our non-track friends, Fidipides, tell that story in a nutshell. Fidipity was a, a, a Greek soldier, and in the Battle of Marathon, they wanted to go and tell the, their, their king that they had won. So they sent Fidipides to run across the plains of Marathon back into Athens to report on the victory. Um, and then legend has it, he died. So he ran 25 miles and then died. Uh, the marathon only was lengthened to 26.2 miles or 42 kilometers so that I believe it was the king of Sweden could see the start of the marathon before the games that were being held in Stockholm that year. So the original distance was 25 miles. And of course, you dedicated marathoners know that no matter who you are, no matter how great or how well conditioned, 
at 20 miles or so. It's down to you and your God, I believe. So I've heard a few <laughs> of you guys joke over the years that, damn it, why couldn't Fidipides die at 20 miles an hour? At 20 miles, sorry. And not 25. <laughs> Would have made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. And so we're all running 26 because of it. Going forward there, you become a running star in high school. You get the attention of the University of Michigan. How did you get their eye and how did you pursue it? Well, like most high school athletes, and, and, and I have to say, I was clueless on even thinking about college until my junior year when, well, sophomore year when letters started showing up from different colleges because I'd run well. Um, but I really didn't have the grades early on. You know, I mean, I was an okay student, but not University of Michigan quality student. Um, but as I got farther into the recruiting process, um, I was looking at a couple of schools, and when uh, Dixon Farmer was the track coach at U of M at that point, um, he, he and I got together a few times, and when they offered me a scholarship, my dad was actually the custodian at Union High School here in Grand Rapids, and one of his friends was the biology teacher, Dick Heinen, who was a football player from the University of Michigan, and he said to my dad, Jay, if that kid can go to Michigan and get a degree, he'll never have to worry about a job because our alumni are everywhere. Um, but quite honestly, the thing that sold me on Michigan without knowing the strength of the academics was, again, I loved football. And I remember watching Bo Schimbeckler in the 1969 team beat Ohio State. And I thought, by God, what a place to go to school. That one game, by the way, recruited about a generation of football players, and I think also a generation of hockey, baseball, track guys, swimmers, you name it. That game had real ripples, and of course, you're one of the guys caught in that tide, basically. So you get to Michigan, and uh, your first year, Dixon Farmer is the head coach. Uh, and then your sophomore year, a new guy shows up named Ronnie Warhurst. He had had no experience as a head coach before, in hindsight, Amazing that Don Canham, the legendary athletic director who was a track star and also was a uh, track coach of great renown, that he picked him with no experience. He must have sensed something in Ronnie, a two-time Purple Heart uh, recipient from Vietnam who won a national title, two national titles at Western Michigan, but was an average runner on that team, not a great runner, but they're national champs. So he goes to Vietnam voluntarily, does not sign up for officer school, uh, enlisted, of course, decides to walk point which is a very dangerous thing to do in Vietnam. So this guy comes back, and it turns out, we found out later, and Ryan will talk about this at a later show, has a fair amount of PTSD. That guy's your head coach. Your life just changed. You know, going back to Ronnie was a graduate assistant at, at Eastern Michigan at the time and knew some of the guys on the team. And the fact that Canham hired him was more out of the fact that Canham could get him cheap. And I love Don Cannon. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Right. Yeah. I think he was paying Ron like 14 grand that first year or something. I don't know. Something ridiculous. But Ron wanted to coach. And Ron was a gifted person in not just his knowledge of running, but how to connect with people. Um, And you learn a lot about coaching or anything, leadership both good and bad from the person that you're dealing with at the time. And Ron taught me so much about making people feel confident in their abilities. And he's, he's, he's just a guru of that. And I think his record over the years has shown that to be true. I believe in the both in indoor, outdoor track, long distance, of course, as well as cross country. I think he won about 18 big 10 titles over his 40 uh, year career. So could do worse than that, that's for sure. But uh, your, your first start with him, of course, was at the Big Ten meet in Iowa City. Um, you had finished a disappointing uh, finish in the steeplechase, one of your specialties at the time, of course. <laughs> and in Iowa City, Ronnie says in front of your parents, right over your station wagon, and your dad, the custodian at Union High School, and your mom came down to see you run. And Ronnie said, in front of your parents, you sucked, you blew it. And I want you to think about that all summer long. Now, we both know, Greg, they say that today to even a You didn't say it that kindly. (laughs) (laughs) He he knew my parents because of the cross-country and indoor track season. So, I mean, he was pretty comfortable being brutally honest in front of them as well as me and basically said, 
you get your ass in that car and you go back to Grand Rapids and you think about this for the summer. <laughs> My dad's over there cheering them on. So, yeah, they, they were on the same wavelength. Well, that's the beauty part. Your dad is cheering them on. Greg, we both know nowadays, even at the college level, even at Division One, you try that, you might be fired the next day. I mean, it's a different world. But back then, like you said, he knew you. He knew your parents. Bronny's also from a blue-collar blue background. So he knew this would be surprisingly well-received, and it was. You did think about that all summer long. And I believe your career changed at that point. You know, and, and again, I, 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 going back to your theme on leadership, um, a good leader knows who he can be blunt with and when he needs to do that. And Ronnie knew me as a person because we ran together almost every morning. Um, he knew what I needed at the time. And I deserved it. You deserved it. And, of course, and it worked. It did motivate you. You were not crushed by this. You were no. inspired. No. I, and and but when Ronnie does things like that, it's always because you understand that he has a higher expectation of you. Um, he knows that you can be better than that. Um, and in that way, you actually feel that you've let him down, your leader down, um, and you want to perform so that he doesn't feel that way. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different mechanism or a, a, it's, it's a different feeling, but someone that you know has faith in you, you just didn't perform at the level that um, they've created the expectation for. And you try to remedy that. Mm -hmm. I love what you said also in that process. And we found this out again and again and again. We've interviewed Carol Hutchins. We've interviewed Jim Hackett, another friend of yours, of course, um, Red Berenson, all well known to you. When leadership is working really well, it's not a matter of the leader versus you and adversarial, you know, this kind of relationship. It's that you do not want to let the leader down. It's a, a self-policing mechanism you have in your soul, essentially, that you refuse to let that man down, that, le that let that woman down. You had that with Ronnie. You created that later on yourself. We'll get to that shortly. But it's an internal mechanism. It's not him just wagging his finger. We just got back from a corporate retreat. And we were talking about this as executives. And I brought up the fact that when we work in the hospital, and as everybody knows right now, the burnout rate for staff and the clinical staff, nurses and others, is unbelievably high. And it's at a time like this where they need to be pumped up, where they need to be recognized for what they've done and accomplished in the last 18 months during this. COVID. They don't need to be reminded always about how much they suffered. They can be reminded about how much they've accomplished, and that motivates them to go even farther. And lots of us know in that case that they have teammates, they've got people on their side. They're not feeling a lot of that these days in healthcare, of course. So uh, the pat on the back with those guys probably goes a long way. It really does. But again, it, it matters that they trust the leader that the leader has their best interest at heart. If, if you don't have that trust in your leader, you don't care that you let them down. But it's when you do have that trust, when you've had that strong relationship and connection with the, the person you're with, um, you, you want to do good by them. Um, but they have to have that trust. Well, you and Ronnie established that early on. You knew when to get in your face, if you will. But also, you said to me privately that you guys, you and Ronnie, went on long runs together, talking about Siddhartha, talking about whatever you're reading, expanding your reading list. He'd tell you to read this, to read that. So in some ways, you guys were sharing philosophy on these long runs. That clearly creates a bond. It absolutely does. And not just a bond with him, but a roadmap for the kind of coach or person or leader you might end up being later in life. Um, so many lessons I learned from Ron um, and others, you know, you learn bad lessons as well as good lessons. So, um, but Ron just had that ability to connect with people all over the spectrum. Well, he's motivated me. We'll get to that later on as well. One of his lines that I've used many times since is on any given day, when you put your toe on the line, in other words, in track, if you're about to compete, 
and you're waiting for the gun to go off and your adrenaline's sky high and there's a bit of dread in some ways and maybe some enthusiasm, but it could be hot, it could be cold, it could be raining. And as Ronnie once told me, he said, on any given day, there's some guy on that line who does not want to be there, does not feel right, is worried about the weather or something else. Make sure that guy's not you and crush that guy. And <laughs> I love that. You're not just going against the elements. You're going against everyone else who's going against the elements. And if someone else does not want to be there, you got a huge advantage. It, it, the weather never finishes first. It just <laughs> sometimes determines who does. But no, it's, Ronnie was great about that stuff. You know, it's like he, if it was a nasty, rainy, muddy day, we'd like, yeah, because somebody's going to whine about it and it's not going to be us. That's awesome. So rainy, cold, wet, muddy, that's an advantage for you guys because everyone else hates it. You know, and people used to say, distance runners from the northern climbs of the Midwest, there'd be great times in high school coming out of California and Texas and down south. But boy, put them into the elements, you know, where they're, you know, they got to make a choice to get out and run in four inches or five inches of snow or, you know, the 10 degree below wind chill. They aren't so tough anymore. I like that, too. Of course, you proved your medal in 83. We'll talk about the Boston Marathon more recently, too. One of the coldest ones a few years ago separated the, the winners from the losers in that race, too. So it often happens that way. And uh, before you graduated in 77, you had Big Ten titles in the 10,000-meter uh, long race, of course, and the steeplechase. So Ronnie's motivation and your hard work all paid off. Tell us a fun story about you working as Bo Schimbeckler's custodian yourself, cleaning out his trash can, <laughs> And what happened because of it? Oh, God. Um, so when I graduated in 77, I wanted to stay around Ann Arbor and keep training. Ron convinced me that um, there was more in me, that, that I could do more. And as an athlete, you, you, you want to explore that. So I got a job as Bo Schimbeckler's janitor, as well as another uh, janit janitor position at a local restaurant. But... Yeah, I was Bo Schimbeckler's janitor, and I was in there one night in their office, which you would have, people would be shocked that the locker room for Bo Schimbeckler and his staff was probably no bigger than 15 by 15, you know, with metal lockers. And I was vacuuming his floor wearing his hat when he, he just showed up and said, Meyer, that, that hat fit very well. And I'm like, oh, dear God, I'm going to be fired. <laughs> You know, but uh, he just, yeah, he just laughed. And then later on, um, Ron asked me, and this was before the hat incident, but Ron had asked me um, in August if I would handle the stretching. You know, in the first week of football, uh, they would do a lot of different stretching and, you know, fitness types of things. And Ron used to put them through uh, stretching exercises, and he had a conflict, so he asked me to do it. And I said, okay, so... I'm out there doing that, and Bo comes out, and he sees me out there, and he calls over John Falk, who uh, you know well, was the head equipment guy at the time, and he's screaming at John, what the F is my gall darn janitor doing on my gall darn football field? And Falk had to explain to him who I was, and Ronnie coached me, and all this other stuff. And by the way, you're being too modest and there. After that, he, that's what John Falk explains to Bo. He may be your janitor. He's also an NCAA champion. So <laughs> he's, here for, he's here for a reason. And Bo had no idea that you were. No, but after that, Bo would see me and he'd go, Meyer, where are you running next? You know, and when I won my first big international race uh, while still his janitor over in Portugal, the, the article was posted on the football board. You know, I mean, Bo thought of people like that. That's why Bo connected with people. He cared about you as a person. Yeah, and it's, I have strong feelings towards Bo. Likewise, of course. And look, he was not paid to motivate you, but he couldn't help himself. Uh, he loved that. And of course, he loved the fact that you were a fighter. So he loved that as well. Before you left Ann Arbor in 1979, you had set American records at 8,000, 10,000, 15,000 meters, 25,000 meters, and the 10 mile. And you had already run a sub four minute mile. That's an, an insane rack of records there, American records all. Um, so at that point, Ronnie said, you've done all you can do here. It's time for you to get out of here. 
but you got the timeline a little wrong. Um, the four-minute mile I did while I was still running under Ronnie, all of those road records came about uh, a year or two after I moved to Boston. Okay. Um, but when I moved to Boston, I started training with the Greater Boston Track Club and Bill Rogers, but the training wasn't working. And uh, at that point, you know, I got back a whole, you know, and Ronnie and I always stayed in touch and always talked. Um, in fact, Ronnie is the one that encouraged me to go to Boston because he said, you know, I, I've sort of taught you everything I, I know. Go find out what those guys are doing out there because at the time, Bill Rogers was the best in the world. And he said, but whatever you find out, just let me know so maybe I can incorporate it. Well, I went out to Boston and it was this long, slow marathon stuff and it wasn't working for me. So got a hold of Ron and Ron goes, let's get back to the basics. Go pound the hills, hard intervals and see what happens. And then immediately within a couple of months, I had set the 25 kilometer record at the Riverbank run here in Grand Rapids. And then over the course of the next two years, uh, everything from 8K up through 25K. Uh, but it was going back to what made me confident to race. And that was the training that Ron had taught me. So, um, And then you realize, of course, when, when you're at the Elliott Lounge, and the Elliott Lounge is a legendary, legendary run. It is the runner's bar probably in the world. Uh, runners hang out, of course, Billy Rogers, who won 22 marathons. He is Mr. Marathon, of course, uh, and your training partner. You're training with him out in Boston. You're in the Elliott Lounge, and the bartender tells you. He says, and this is after I had just set the 10K record beating Billy on Heartbreak Hill. Um, we're sitting there celebrating afterwards, and he looks at me, and he goes, someday you're going to be as good as Vinnie Fleming. Vinnie Fleming was a teammate on the Greater Boston Track Club team who happened to have gotten 10th in the Boston Marathon. And it just dawned on me at the time that unless I run a marathon, they really don't think I'm very good yet. So that was the catalyst that said, well, maybe I better run a marathon. Um, and that set me on the course to running Detroit as my first marathon and then moving on to others after that but it, yeah it was just that he thought he was giving me a compliment but it was a backhanded <laughs> slap and it's like okay i'll figure this out well look i mean sad to say it is the coin of the realm that we knew bill rogers we knew salazar we knew you eventually of course when you started winning uh, big time marathons we watched marathons we still watch marathons americans don't watch the 10k very often sad to say so uh the catch is however you're not really built for a marathon, not physically. Um, and I, Bill Rogers was 128 pounds at his peak when he's winning this thing. The Kenyans are 118 these days when they're winning it. And at your leanest, you are 155. I once said to Ronnie Warhurst, of course, you're a great coach. I said, you know, Greg really was never built for the marathon. And Ronnie looks at me and says, Greg was built to wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but I was certainly bigger and, and the marathon took its toll on me and it, it probably ended, it shortened my career because once you win a Chicago or a Boston, everybody assumes you're a marathoner. And quite honestly, back in the day, that's where you were going to earn your money. You know, and I was trying to raise a family and do those things. The money was in the marathon, not in the shorter distances. And, you know, it's, it's hindsight, but, um, had I not run or tried to run so many marathons after winning Boston, um, and when I say many, it's two a year, uh, I probably would have had a longer career and maybe won more of them, but stretched them out. And like you said, hindsight's twenty twenty, but still not a not a bad run, as we say, no pun intended. Uh, you won the the Detroit Marathon in the fall of nineteen eighty. And you felt ready to take on Boston that spring in 1981. After 15 miles, you are in the lead and you think this is your year. Yeah, I was leading going into the hills, uh, you know, the, the Newton Hills. And, you know, my mind, my instincts for racing said take the lead. Um, and I did that and held it for a while. But as I got further into the hills, um, I just wasn't prepared. 
in terms of the strength that I needed to carry that to the finish line. And, you know, by 19, 20 miles, uh, Seiko from Japan, Bill Rogers and others were going by me. And, you know, it's, it wasn't that my instincts were wrong. It was, I just didn't have the background in fitness to back up what I needed to do. So it took me two years of really always in the back of my mind, well, I want to get ready for Boston. I want to get ready for Boston. Um, and it wasn't until 83 that all of that came back together again. Well, 83, you're back on the line. You're feeling good. You think this might be your year, but you're probably more humble about it internally. You realize that this Boston tells you how it wants you to run it. You don't determine this yourself always. But there you are with uh, Benji Durden, and you are neck and neck with him throughout the entire race up through 20 miles. And then a crucial moment. Well, actually, Benji had about, oh, 150-meter lead on me at 25 kilometers just after 15 miles when you come up over 128 and um we were on world record pace and i i let him go because i just assumed it was too fast and we had broken away from everybody else once we made the turn um into the newton hills again where two years before i was the one that was caught and beaten it was now my turn and I caught him between the second and third, or actually between the first and second hill uh, in Newton. Uh, and when I put a surge on just to test him to see if he could go, he couldn't. And that became the decision like, okay, now's the time to leave him. And things worked out pretty well. <laughs> things worked out very well. You set a record at the time of 209. But speaking of hindsight, uh, once you get to the top of the hills, you've got about five miles left. You're running a little over five-minute miles, but then you heard the guy in the TV truck rolling past and rolling in front of you saying, you've got this. Then you, and I have to use the word coasted in quotes, coasted at a, at a pace of 520, which I've never run in my entire life, so I have no idea what that's like as coasting. But most of us don't, of course. Uh, but coasted at a 520 clip, um, you missed the Boston record by eight seconds, a record you could have very easily shattered that year. And, and at the time, it didn't matter too much to you, but in hindsight, you wish you had gone harder. Well, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where in training, and I was very lucky that so much of my training was on the actual Boston Marathon course. And as you learn as an athlete, you envision what's going to happen um, and then it usually does. And I always envisioned um, in my training, at least the last few months leading into Boston, when I knew I was fit, I never saw anybody ahead of me when I came off of Heartbreak Hill. And it was about the 23-mile mark after Cleveland Circle. In the old days, there was no crowd control. There were no fences to hold people back. And there were big crowds. And as the press truck would go through, the crowd would open like a snake swallowing a mouse, and then it would close in behind you as you went. So I was looking behind to see who was coming, always assuming it would probably be Bill. And I couldn't see anybody because as I would go through, the crowd would lean in to see who was coming next, so I couldn't see behind me. And with three miles to go, somebody on the press truck yelled, relax, there's nobody coming. And it takes that edge off, you know, and do I regret that I listened to him or heard that? Maybe a little bit because I, there's a part of me that always ran out of fear that somebody was going to catch me. Um, but I have no regrets because we never, ever, and I was working with Coach Bill Squires at the time who adapted his training to what Warhurst had taught me, and he got me ready for the marathon. We never once talked about how fast we were going to run. We talked about how we were going to beat the field. How were you going to win? What did you need to do to win? That was the only thing that was important. So as, as I remember saying at the press conference, records will come and go, but winning Boston is there forever. That is exactly right. Jack Nicklaus, the famous golfer, of course, arguably the best of all time, I would say so, said the same thing about in his day in the you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, later on, of course, Tiger Woods set records at the Masters, at the U.S. Open, and so on. 
Jack Nicholas said, we never ever thought about records. You either won the green jacket or you didn't. And <laughs> it's, it's very black and white. You have the jacket or you don't. You won the Boston Marathon or you didn't. And that was the thinking at the time, of course. So Nicholas said, yeah, in hindsight, could I have you know, pressed the last three or four holes when I was winning? Yeah, maybe. Uh, but I would not have won any more U.S. Opens doing it that way. And he also said, and this might apply to you too, if you had kept the hammer down, who knows what your body does? What if you'd gotten greedy you know, and popped a hamstring or something? That is possible. You never know. And likewise, Nicholas said, what I was not going to do with a five-stroke lead is lose the five-stroke lead. <laughs> That's what he was not going to do. So maybe minus eight is, is cooler and better, uh, but it does not win you any more green jackets at the Masters, obviously. That applies to you. Yeah. The goal of the day is to win, and if that's what happens, then you can't be disappointed, and I was never disappointed. I like that. And, of course, looking back on things, of course, with modern, the modern prism, of course, of what you're looking at only gets you so far. It doesn't do, doesn't do you too much. You were able at a time when very few could to make a living running. Now, of course, you know thousands can do this, but back then it was quite rare. So you did that. If you, you also won, of course, the Chicago Marathon. You and I sat down at one point and calculated you've run about 70,000 miles in your career. If you're a car, I've traded you in, haven't I? <laughs> you've at least got a new set of tires. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's probably well over 70. That's just what I documented. And there's a lot of guys that have run a lot farther, you know. But, you know, you loved what you were doing. I loved the training especially, you know, when you get to train with people like Bill Rogers and Mike Roach and Randy Thomas out in Boston or my teammates at Michigan, you know, Cross and Bear Hall when they were here and, um, you know, Brian Deemer, who is an Olympian out of Grand Rapids, he and I would get together and do workouts together. Uh, it, you just, it, it's, it's like anything, you share a bond and you just enjoy each other's company, but it just helps you in terms of how well you can work when you have somebody there with you. That makes a lot of sense, obviously. So we'll take a brief break here with uh, John Bacon talking to Greg Myers, the champion of Boston, Detroit, and Chicago marathons, one of the top 10 American-born marathoners of all time, right here on Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. We'll be right back. This podcast grew out of John Bacon's latest book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. In it, John Bacon explains how they turned around the Ann Arbor-Huron High School Hockey Team from worst to first in three years by changing the culture, building trust, and letting the players take over the team. Boston Globe columnist Dan Shaughnessy said, Let Them Lead is where Ted Lasso meets the Mighty Ducks. You can order Let Them Lead from John U. Bacon at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, BAM, Books A Million, and your local bookseller. Just ask for Let Them Lead by John U. Bacon. Welcome back. This is John Bacon on Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. Uh, after your running career is over, I mean, it can't last forever. And in those days, of course, you have to keep on working. These days, you can retire as a millionaire in those days. So you started working out, of course, for Brooks Shoes. That was your main shoe company for many years until 1993. And then Reebok, and then you got into academia. Tell us a bit about working for the shoe companies. And how did you make the transition from being a world-class competitive athlete to working, as we'd say, basically a day job like us? It was a transition. Um from being your own boss to not being your own boss. But uh, with Brooks, you know, I, I, they were located in my hometown um, and it was why I signed with them at the time. And I had a great run with them for a long, long period of time. But then they sold the Brooks division to uh, a Norwegian company that moved it to Seattle. And my wife and I at the time did not really feel like moving to Seattle. Um, so we moved to Boston, back to Boston. And I did a little bit of consulting for the John Hancock and then um, got pulled into Reebok and worked at Reebok for five years. And there are parts of the job that I truly loved, and then parts of the job that were just hard on a family. Um, you know, I was gone a lot, traveling a lot, you know, 
people think, oh boy, it must be just wonderful to be able to travel the world and you know work for a shoe company that's all funding. It's not funding games. Uh, you're hitting quarterly numbers. Your product line has to be right. Um, all of these things that uh, people don't see, uh, and it 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 was hard. Uh, made some great friends, but uh, we got to a period of time. I think the average length of stay at Reebok when I was there was 2.2 years. Wow. So people were coming in and going out. It was not a fun place to be for the most part. I lasted five years and then they reorged all of the performance categories, uh, basketball, cleated, running, uh, all of them, basketball. And um, I ended up um, talking to one of the regents at the University of Michigan who thought I'd be a great fit in marketing for the athletic department back at Michigan, uh, but that didn't work. But he threw my name out to the head of development, Susan Fagan, who was the VP of uh, for the university at that point, and she got a hold of me. And my daughter was had just um, started her freshman year at Michigan, out of state tuition, I might add. And <laughs> I went in to visit with her in no October or November. And just had a meeting with her, and she set me up talking with somebody else in the development office who had also come out of a business background rather than a pure development background. And she was just a great lady. And she asked me, so what do you think? And I said, so here you call a person to get an appointment. They know you're from the university, and they know you're from the development office, so they know why you're coming. If they take the meeting, you got a pretty good chance. She goes, yeah, that's about it. I said, I think I can do that. Um, so I was with the university for eight years and um, loved the people that I worked with, loved the people I met. The only reason why I left the university and moved back to Grand Rapids was um, my mom was getting older and having issues and my brother was the only one here and he had the burden yeah, he had the burden of taking care of her. And uh, the Weggie Foundation here in Grand Rapids, who I got to know through the university doing my job, recruited me to come to Aquinas College, a small Catholic school here that they were really involved with. And um, they ended up actually donating money for the first three years I was here to offset my salary so that I could come to work at Aquinas and live in Grand Rapids. Um, uh, Another great experience, and then over time got pulled back in, and now I'm back with the University of Michigan Health West and back under the Block M and living the dream. I am just, uh, it's my dream job right now. I'm working with the best leadership team I have ever been around. Um, they are incredible. Uh, they don't always agree, but they are respectful of one another and encourage one another. It is just an amazing place. Well, one of the lines in my latest book, Let Them Lead, which if you don't have a copy, I need to send you one, of course, Greg, but it's from uh, William Wrigley of Wrigley Gum fame and Wrigley Field and all that in Chicago. He said, if two partners in business always agree, one of them is unnecessary. You're supposed to disagree sometimes, and that's not the issue. The issue is, can you handle it respectfully, as you say? What separates this leadership team from the four or five other organizations you've been a part of as a, as a day worker, not a runner? Um, I think what separates this leadership team from many that I've seen is our CEO, uh, Dr. Peter Hahn. Um, he encourages you to offer opinions, uh, different opinions, and he hears everything. And you know that you've been heard, and but he won't tolerate people who are mean. Um, it's, and, and I think that was the culture that was here at the hospital before he got here, but people are nice to one another. Um, and it's, it's infectious, you know, you, how you talk to a person, if you have to criticize somebody, you do it in a way that hopefully is um, encouraging rather than uh, demeaning. And it's, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't know how I would explain it any better. It's just 
people have respect for one another. And if you don't, it won't be tolerated. I mean, we brought docs into our organization that are talented, talented docs, but we're brutal to staff. You're gone. You're not going to be here. You know, it, that's not the culture we want. I got to love it, of course. And what I find at the highest levels of leadership, it's not the complicated things that separate the, the good from the great. It's the simple things, but as Bo would often say, don't confuse simple with easy. Uh, we only have two roles in our hockey team. Work hard, support your teammates. Couldn't be simpler. Do that every day. Try to do that every day. The beauty part about those things is you're in complete control of both of those when you wake up. It's not the weather. It's not the breaks. It's not the traffic. It's not anything else. It's just up to you to work hard, support your teammates. But find the team that does that every day. That's a hard team to beat no matter what field they're in. That's kind of what you guys are doing there in West Michigan. So it's simple, but it's not easy because, as you point out, not everybody can do it. We are, however, skipping ahead. Uh, one of your greatest experiences, in my opinion, uh, while, you're, while you're in Ann Arbor from 2000 to 08, back at the University of Michigan in the development office, of course, and you've got three kids, a daughter and two sons growing up in that area. Uh, you're living in Dexter, Michigan, not too far from Ann Arbor, about 15 minutes. And you started helping out Jamie Dudash, the uh, cross-country coach at Dexter with summer and winter conditioning, which is about half the year, right? So that's pretty important. You guys start rattling off. You guys started kind of nowhere. And then you start rattling off five straight state titles, Division Two cross-country, 2002, three, four, five, and six. Uh, that has never happened before or since at that level. So how did you guys do it? What did you start with, and what did you emphasize? It started actually with a neighbor. Um, there was a, a young lady and her younger brother who lived across the street from us when we moved into Dexter that were runners, and they knew that I you know, had a history. Um, they asked me would I help them in the offseason because – you know, Jamie really wasn't doing much in the off season with the kids. So I said, yeah, I would help him with that. And then it just grew to a few other kids that all of a sudden now we're meeting two, three times a week um, through the winter and the summer. But I was also respectful of Jamie in that I told him what I was doing. And I said, hey, you know, they've asked. And here's what my strategy is for what I'm doing, which is building strength. I'm not doing speed work. I'm not doing anything, not getting them ready to race. We're just having fun and building strength. And we worked so well together because we communicated about what we were doing. That first year, you know, with a few guys uh, that jumped in, they went from qualifying a person for the state meet to where I believe the guys got third. Um, the girls weren't, yeah, the team got there. Chris Burke um, made all state. But it was after that year, Chris Burke was an all state swimmer as well. And he came to me in his June, at the, towards the end of his junior year, and he said, I, I, I love swimming and I wanna, I'm going to keep swimming, but I want to run in college. Can you help me get there? Can you help me get good enough to get there? And I said, yeah, um, we can do that. And we laid out a program of, you know, starting that summer of, well, it, it actually was his sophomore year between sophomore and junior year. And we started laying out this program of his training. And Chris was the kind of kid that brought others with him. And all of a sudden, other kids were coming. And now we got 10 kids. Now we got 15 kids. And it's like, it turned into something. And that next year, Chris ended up getting third in the state. Um, and they won as a team. And at the same time, we had a really good middle school coach, um, Bob Jaswinski and, and his wife were coaching the middle school and they were doing a perfect job of getting kids interested in having fun with running. And it just created this pipeline of success, uh, starting with Chris. And then, you know, you go down and, you know, Chris ended up um, 
running for Brown, which is an interesting story um, because he was a leader. And I remember him wanting to go to Brown, and he was probably on the margin of getting in. And I, I knew the, the cross-country coach at Brown, John Gregoric, former Olympian. And I wrote John a letter, and I said, John, if this kid comes to Brown and runs for you, he will be your captain. He's that kind of a kid. And by his junior year, darn if he wasn't the captain of Brown's cross-country team. Um, he's just that kind of a leader. Went on to University of Michigan Med School, is now a thoracic surgeon out in Seattle. Um, but that's the kind of kid that just was incredible. And Dexter had a long line of those kids that came through that were smart, talented, motivated, and willing to do the work. Well, sounds familiar, Greg. Hate to tell you. But uh, one thing that never works in this show at all is trying to give a great coach a compliment. Never works. The first thing we'll talk about is, of course, Chris Burke and Lex Williams and all these other great runners you had at Dexter and what they've done since. So uh, that's an amazing story. And they've not returned since, by the way. So don't underestimate your own ability, of course. Yes, Chris Burke got a lot of guys out, but he tells his buddies, and oh, by the way, our offseason coach is the Boston Marathon champion. That might get a little buzz in Dexter, Michigan, is my guess. <laughs> but, uh, but you'll, you'll deny that. What's funny is four of those guys all came out of the same little neighborhood in Lock Alpine. Wow. I mean, they would walk over to the house, and we'd do the training from the house. That's how close they all lived together. That's pretty amazing. So, yes, your neighborhood, you had three or four kids who were state champs right there. And uh, what have I got next door? We've got Mason Furlick, an Olympic steeplechase guy in your uh, footpath there, of course, a steeplechase NCAA champion. Ben Flanagan, another NCAA champion. And down the street, the high school kid uh, who set the high school record for the mile. He's now at Northern Arizona. So apparently, Greg, everybody's drinking this fast water except for me. So it's not working for me. <laughs> yeah, but if they ever got on the ice with you, they wouldn't know what to do. Well, there you go. I, I got a better chance there. I can't let you go without saying this. Uh, in 2000, I realized that uh, I needed to lose about 35 pounds. I'd let myself go thanks to deadlines and travel and a kid and all this. All the usual excuses. They're just bad excuses. So I got with you and Ronnie Warhurst, and we started working out. And 35 pounds later, in about uh, a year and change, I was ready for the Boston Marathon, thanks to Tom Grilk, the CEO of the BAA, who's going to give me a media pass for that. But of course, everything is canceled in the spring of 2000, uh, 2020, that is. Um, so I can't do it. What do we do instead? I do the Bakeothon, start at my parents' house, and run through all my memories, all my friends' houses. Their parents are still around, have signs outside, my old schools, ballparks, rinks, the Arboretum, of course, University of Michigan, and managed to run 26 miles on the way home to my current home. My wife and kid were waiting, but you drove from Grand Rapids that morning, and certainly no one was paying you for this. You drove from Grand Rapids that morning to be with me at 8 o'clock in the morning, perfect day for it, it turns out, at my parents' house, and he had to spend five very long hours, because that's how slow I was, around town, cheering me on throughout and giving me good advice. One great bit of advice that applies to just about everything, and you got in my ear before I started, I was not going to set any records that day. We knew that. But the question is, could I finish? I've never done it before. And you said to me, put two hands, a hand on my shoulders. And you said, run your own race. Don't get caught up in your friends and the bike pacers and the watch and everything else. And more friends joined us along the way. And at about 100 before we were done. Uh, but run your own race. Man, that is great advice for anybody doing anything. It's so easy get caught up in the, the, in the pack, of course, and get lost and go too fast or too slow and, and lose your way. And if one thing life has taught you is to run your own race. Always. But, John, don't discount the fact that most of us showed up just because we wanted to see you suffer a little bit the last few months. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I, kidding. I, I came oh, well, like hell you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, look – as you said, before you're done, you will pay the price. And you told me that about three weeks in advance. You said, you're ready and you can do this. You're going to pay the price, but you can do this. And that's exactly what happened. So uh, got to ask you one more question before we go. And that is, who was your favorite teacher and why? Um, my favorite teacher was a guy by the name of Ed Wagner. Mm -hmm. He taught eighth. He was the basketball coach at West Catholic. 
and he taught AP history. And I carried his, he had a, a back in the old days, remember the mimeographed sheets? Oh yeah, purple. A, his whole curriculum was on those sheets. And I carried that AP history course uh, uh, syllabus around with me for years. And wow. it was his teaching, his method of, or he gave me the confidence that I could go to the University of Michigan and succeed. Um, so I, and I've said this to him, I said it in front of uh, groups when I've talked at West Catholic, you know, when you, they bring me back to do some things that that was the guy. He, he was a better teacher than he was a coach and he was a pretty doggone good coach. I love it. Uh, and of course, was he easy? No, he wasn't. No, but he made it fun. Mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, it boils down to this. Everybody in the world, by the way, can come up with their favorite teacher. I've asked this question for 10 years now. And in English, Portuguese, and Espanol, they all come up with it. And it's never the easy one, but they always cared about you. They're passionate about their subject. And they're passionate about their students. It's, there are no exceptions. There are a lot of variables here, but those are not variables. Those are constants. So I love it. Boiling down, as I do it with all my guests, three takeaways I got from Greg. And really, got, I got five or six, let's be honest here. I got a whole lot of notes here. One, you got to have a vision. That comes up a lot in these conversations. When you envisioned winning Boston, you had that you had that vision in your mind, etched in your brain, I'm sure, for years before it actually happened. And you always envision nobody in front of you. And that's exactly what happened, of course. So that's pretty cool. I also like what I'm going to call the weather is your friend. In other words, adversity is your pal. Why? Because it weeds out the weak. And if you ain't the weak, that's your teammate right there. I love that. And from Dr. Peter Hahn, uh, disagree without being disagreeable. We have to disagree. We cannot be disagreeable. It's got to be respectful. It's got to be, there's no meanness. I love all that. That is basically, guess what? Let them lead. He's letting you lead with your ideas. So great stuff here, champ. Anything to add before we go? No, just John, I enjoyed it. And I expect to see that book. I don't think I'm going to be able to, I'm going to try to get your book signing here, but not sure how that night's going to work. All right. Well, I can tell you this is Cindy Lewis is going to be there for incentive. So she was the glamour girl in my neighborhood. Uh, lovely lady who'll be in attendance that night. So anyway, uh, <laughs> right. there you go. Greg Meyer, the 1983 Boston Marathon champion, champion uh, high school cross country coach. And now, of course, doing very well in the healthcare industry. Greg uh, learned a lot as always. And even though I know your story, I still learn more every time I talk to you. So I really appreciate this. And, uh, and thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. You can connect with our host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, by visiting his website, letthemleadbybacon.com. We hope you had some fun, learned a few things you can use tomorrow, and think about the rest of your life. Come back next week for more Unexpected Lessons in Leadership, and we'll see you then.